Hello again, this is Patrick Ridgell with Transamerica, and I'm here once again with Transamerica Chief Investment Officer Tom Wald. Tom, how are you today? I'm well, Patrick. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, Tom, you've just written a new Where We Stand piece entitled Catalysts, Concerns, and Opportunities as 2Q Begins, in which you look at both market catalysts and concerns, some, some of which are very different than when the year began just a few months ago. That's right. Okay, so so take us through how this has played out since the year started and where we are right now. Sure. Uh, I've always been a believer that uh, markets climb a wall of worry, meaning the more obstacles they seemingly face, the more asset prices tend to rise when those concerns are reconciled. Mm -hmm. And even after the incredibly strong run we had after March of last year, this year, 2021, still began with a pretty solid wall of worries facing investors. And those included mm -hmm. uh, COVID-19 cases were, were basically exploding to absolutely horrifying numbers. Uh, expectations for first quarter economic growth were quite meager. I, I think most forecasts back in January were for about 1% to 2% annualized GDP growth in the first quarter. Some were even negative. Uh, this spilled into concerns about calendar year 2021 growth for both the economy and corporate earnings. And there were uncertainties about Congress's ability to pass further uh, fiscal economic stimulus. So even though we had had this big run in the markets, there was still a lot to worry about back in early January. Uh, since that time, in these past three months or so, we've seen most of these worries reconciled or in the case of the tragic COVID case numbers, at least meaningfully improved upon. Uh, distribution of the vaccines have ramped up amazingly and are well ahead of previous expectations. And this has brought the pace of new infections down considerably. The Atlanta Fed is now currently tracking first quarter GDP at north of 8% annualized. Uh, and most forecasts for calendar year 2021 GDP growth are also north of 7% or so, which, if accomplished, would represent a true V-shaped recovery from the depths of last year. Uh, yeah. S&P 500 underlying company operating earnings could come in north of 25% growth versus last year. And, of course, we saw $1.9 trillion dollars in fiscal economic stimulus passed by Congress in March, and we have plans to see another $3 trillion or so in additional spending on its way back to Congress in the next few months. So most of these market concerns from just a few months ago have reconciled or appear to be reconciling favorably, and in my opinion, have transitioned from market concerns to market catalysts. But as we all know, Patrick, the market gives us very few hall passes, so to speak. And with the reconcile yeah. with the reconciliation of these concerns uh, and their transition to catalysts, a new set of concerns or a new wall of worry, if you will, has been built in recent months. And that new wall now consists of potentially rising inflation, higher long-term interest rates, the prospect of higher federal taxes, and of course, the risk of some sort of short-term market correction. So we have a new wall, so to speak, uh, which if successfully climbed in the year ahead, there's a good chance, in my opinion, we continue to move higher. 
Tom, let's talk about the, about the vaccines for a minute. Um, this is something that has touched a lot of people's lives in the past few months. And, and of course, it transcends the markets in terms of the light at the end of the tunnel on COVID. Uh, absolutely, Patrick. In my opinion, the distribution of vaccines here in the, U- in the U.S. has been the story so far this year, both in the markets and outside the markets. I don't think anyone back in January really thought by the start of May We would have roughly one third of the country fully vaccinated and more than half of the population having been administered at least one dose of a vaccine. It's truly remarkable. Uh, I I follow the Bloomberg vaccine tracker site and their latest estimate is that we are at a daily run rate of about 2.7 million doses per day. And at this rate, Bloomberg estimates 75% of the U.S. population will be fully vaccinated by about August or so. Uh, And, of course, this is all very good news for the economy, which in parallel to the vaccine distributions appears ready to pretty much absolutely blow past previous growth expectations of just a few months ago. So this is quite interesting, Tom. I mean, last year at this time and into the summer, there there was a lot of speculation as to what the shape of the recovery was going to be. We heard a lot of letters, V-shape, U-shape, L-shape, W-shape, all of them pertaining to the length of time it would take for the U.S. economy to fully recover to pre-COVID levels. And now it looks like we're finally finding out the answer. We are. And that answer, Patrick, is now looking like a big V. Uh-huh. Uh, if we achieve the consensus forecast as they stand right now for about 7% GDP growth for the year, we will exceed pre-COVID aggregate GDP of 2019 sometime in the second half of this year. Uh, as you mentioned, officially completing a V-shaped recovery in about a year and a half's time. Okay. Now, now, just to take a little perspective of what this means, at about this time last year, when we were experiencing the depths of the COVID economic shock, the worst single quarter of economic contraction since the Great Depression, at that time, a year ago, consensus forecasts would, were that we would not return to pre-COVID aggregate GDP until sometime in about 2023. So this is pretty incredible when you make that comparison. Mm-hmm. I think another key element here is the concept of pent-up demand in the economy right now. This pertains to the bottleneck of potential economic activity and consumer spending that's ready to break as the economy reopens. If there's one statistic jumping out at me right now above all others, it's that Bank of America estimates that there is $3.5 trillion in additional savings across the U.S. uh, versus a year ago at this time. Uh, That's a big number and represents about 15% of aggregate GDP. $3.5 trillion? Yes, with a T. $3.5 trillion is the estimate of the ad- total additional savings in people's bank accounts right now versus this time last year. And, wow. and that's a combination of a lot of things. The payments many have received uh, from the fiscal stimulus programs, like the CARES Act and American Rescue Plan, the approximate uh, $11 million or so who have now been able to return to work since the depths of the 20 uh, million million jobs lost in April of last year. Mm. And obviously, 
most people have spent a lot less money while in quarantine over this past year. So in terms of consumer spending, which has historically accounted for about two thirds of GDP growth, uh, we, we could have a racehorse at the gates here right now. And that could also translate into higher earnings for stocks? Uh, yes, it definitely could. And I believe almost certainly will. Uh, if you look at expectations for operating earnings on underlying S&P 500 companies, as gathered and calculated by FactSet Earnings Insight, uh, we had plateaued at the pre-pandemic record high in 2019 before we experienced the big hit in 2020 when corporate profits uh, for that index fell by about 12%. But okay. like GDP, we are now looking at a strong recovery being forecast for 2021, exceeding, potentially exceeding the pre-COVID highs uh, by uh, year end. We could see S&P 500 underlying operating earnings up more than 25% versus 2020, and up about 12% or more from the pre-virus levels of 2019. And I believe you just raised your price target on stocks versus where you were when the year began. Yes, that's right. My year-end 2021 price target in the S&P 500 was 4,200 at the start of the year, and I've taken that up to 4,500. Okay. Uh, that reflects about a 4.5% earnings yield on 2022 operating profits. So uh, still more upside, in my opinion. Tom, let's talk about the fiscal stimulus that's been passed by Congress over the past year and how that is currently impacting the market. I mean, this is adding up to some really big numbers. We've never seen anything like this before, have we? Uh, no, Patrick, we haven't. Just in terms of what has been passed and signed into law since the pandemic began, we have $2.2 trillion from the CARES Act in March of last year, an additional $900 billion in follow-up uh, stimulus from the Consolidated Appropriations Act in December of 2020, uh, and of course, most recently, another $1.9 trillion just passed in March in the American Rescue Plan, also known as the COVID-19 Relief and stimulus package, all of these totaling an even $5 trillion, which much with much of that uh, going to direct cash payments to individuals and families and direct financial assistance to small businesses and uh, local governments. Mm -hmm. Now, bear in mind, these numbers do not include the proposed $2.3 trillion legislation recently proposed by the White House in the American Jobs Plan, and probably about another $1 trillion or so uh, from the American Family Plan, both headed for the House and Senate probably in the next few months. So, Patrick, I believe that what this stimulus has done and will continue to do is provide a tailwind for the economy. Uh, this $5 trillion already passed and in effect, I believe, will be additive to economic growth. Now, on the flip side, the pending $3.3 trillion yet to be brought to Congress could be a bit of a different story because it is expected to have meaningful tax increases tied to it. Mm -hmm. but, but just in isolation, this $5 trillion that is already filtering through or in the process of filtering through the economy, 
I believe will be additive to economic growth. And while some argue that most or all of that tailwind is already in stock prices, I don't think so. I think there could be more upside as the economy actually transitions from a recovery to an expansion mode. And on the monetary side, you still see the Federal Reserve remaining accommodative, even with this expected sharp uptick in economic growth? Uh, Yes, I do. I I believe the Fed will likely keep the Fed funds rate at its current target of zero to 0.25%, probably into 2023, and also maintain open market bond purchases at uh, their current monthly level of $120 billion at least into next year. And, And that remains a big assurance point for investors and also, in my judgment, a continuing market catalyst. Uh, There are a few reasons why I think the Fed will stay within these historically accommodated parameters for the foreseeable future, even with a blistering year-over-year economic growth and some threat of at least transient inflation. And the reasons I I, I feel that way, Patrick, is one, the long end of the yield curve has moved up considerably, so there's already been some heavy lifting done by the market itself. Two, Mm -hmm. the Fed conveyed publicly last summer that they are likely to let inflation run above their long-term target of 2% for some time before taking action. And three, and perhaps most importantly, uh, we are still about 8.5 million jobs short of where we were in February of 2020. And I think that is weighing heavily in the minds of Chairman Powell and the other Fed members. So I see the Fed pretty much staying where they are. And in doing so, this likely serves as an ongoing market catalyst. So to summarize, Tom, we've talked about a series of market catalysts, as you like to describe them. Vaccine distribution, strong economic growth, strong earnings growth, $5 trillion in fiscal stimulus, and continued accommodative monetary policy at Fed. That's right. Now, let's talk about some of your concerns. You've written about inflation, uh, longer-term interest rates, taxes, correction risks. Yeah, Yes, that's right. And these are all part of that new wall of worry, so to speak. Okay. So one concern being talked about more in recent days is higher taxes. Now, I know this is a risk you've been talking and writing about for some time, going all the way back to last summer's election campaign. Looks like others are finally starting to agree with you. Uh, Yes, Patrick. Uh, I've been banging the drums, so to speak, ever since President Biden was candidate Biden and announced his draft tax plan to raise a myriad of provisions. Uh, And now that plan has essentially been directly linked to the White House's proposed uh, $3.3 trillion in additional spending likely headed for Congress this summer. Now, in order to pay for these additional spending packages, going to Congress in the next few months, it's now fully expected these pieces of legislation will attempt to include a virtual overhaul of the present federal tax code. And this could include meaningful increases to the marginal corporate tax rate, higher taxes on overseas profits for corporations, an increase to the top bracket individual rate, an increase in the payroll tax for employers and highly paid employees, a reduction in the estate tax exemption threshold, and the elimination of capital gains step-up treatment on inherited assets. Mm -hmm. And what's created a bit of a stir in recent days was a report from the White House that they would seek 
an increase in the capital gains tax, the tax on recognized capital gains when selling assets from its current designated rate uh, to an individual income rate for high earners plus the existing surtax, which in aggregate would wind up being in excess of 40% for those in the highest of income segments. So at certain high income thresholds, this would be more than double the current capital gains tax rate. Probably not something the market would likely appreciate. Now, what's interesting here in terms of the market's reaction to this potential cap gains increase is that it was actually included in the draft Biden tax plan going all the way back to last summer. So it really should not have been that much of a surprise, only that now it's been linked to specific spending legislation as a funding source. So I guess that's given it more attention now. But in total, the Tax Foundation estimates all of these potential new higher tax provisions in their entirety and at the magnitudes represented so far could have an impact of two to three trillion dollars over the next decade. I think that could create a drag on the economy to some extent and elicit a negative reaction from the markets. Again, if these tax increases were to be passed in their entirety. Now, in all likelihood, all of this is headed for a big political showdown in Congress later this year with some pretty fierce party lines being drawn. Mm -hmm. So we don't know how much or if any of this tax overhaul will pass. Remember, it's a 50-50 split in the Senate right now. So there's little room for error on getting all these tax hikes passed and a lot of room for compromise in terms of eliminating a good portion of them. But if all of these stated provisions were to be passed as currently proposed, I think you could see some impact to economic growth in the markets. Of course, that would have to be netted out against everything else we've talked about. Uh, so, so we'll see. Okay, now let's uh, move on to inflation. This is a new concern as inflation trends have been incredibly benign these past several years. What has changed and how should investors be, be viewing what some believe to be the new predominant risk of the markets? Uh, well, Patrick, uh, w- one thing I've been saying a lot in recent weeks is that all of this talk about rising inflation being back on everyone's radar uh, is that it really makes me feel old. <laughs> and, and that's because and that's because I can remember quite well what inflation was really bad. I mean, really, really bad. As in the early 1980s, I was in college at the time, and there was about 13% inflation. Uh, my summer job money didn't go very far. I worked in a warehouse uh, without air conditioning all summer and would go back to school in the fall with less buying power than before I got paid. So that's what I first think of when I hear inflation risk. Not necessarily what people are talking about in terms of upcoming inflation rates over the next year, temporarily exceeding the Fed's target of 2%. Uh, (laughs) Over the past 50 years, the average annual rate on the consumer price index uh, has been 3.9%, and the median annual rate has been 3.1%. That's a half century of inflation averaging more than twice where we are today. And along the way, uh, there were a couple of stints more than five times where we are today. Hmm. But getting back to the present day, uh, I I don't think this time 
anyone will be that surprised by higher inflation in the upcoming year. One reason for this is the quote-unquote base effects of the economy, which are really historically anomalous. Aggregate demand last year dropped so low, so fast, then came back so strong and so fast, uh, and is still coming back, that there simply has to be a somewhat high probability that we'll see uh, the uh, CPI and, and perhaps more importantly, the personal consumption expenditures of the PCE index, which is the Fed's preferred measure, perhaps challenging that 2% target or even exceeding it for some time frame thereafter. So if we were to move above the Fed's target, even to say 3%, uh, which is close to a double in the rate of inflation in terms of where we've been this past decade, I think that's still a manageable level. And again, given that it's being driven by these historically anomalous base effects, uh, I believe there's a good chance it does not wind up being sustained for a long enough uh, period to warrant targeted policy action by the Fed. And of course, the, the prospect of higher inflation also ties into a second concern you mentioned, uh, the rise in longer term interest rates we've seen in recent months. What are your thoughts here? Uh, yes. So we've seen a pretty steep rise in the longer end of the yield curve these past few months. Remember, just last August, the 10-year Treasury yield hit its all-time record closing low of just 0.52%, mm -hmm. and we started 2021 at just 0.93%. Last month, this rate surpassed 1.7%, so it has been a fast and furious move. Uh, though we've come off uh, a bit and are now at about uh, 1.55 to 1.6% uh, as we speak. Okay. But given this newer environment of stronger economic growth and some concern concern of at least transit inflation uh, in, in the year ahead, I would not be surprised to see the 10-year yield challenge or perhaps slightly exceed 2% between now and year end. But a couple of things are important here, in my opinion, Patrick. First is that even with this jump the past few months, longer-term rates are still low by historical standards. For instance, over the past 30 years, the 10-year Treasury yield has averaged about 4%. And again, these higher rates we're now seeing are an indicator of stronger economic growth, which should show up in higher stock earnings. And so higher long-term rates have to be viewed, in my opinion, in association with those higher earnings. Mm -hmm. Also, if we do see the 10-year yield rise uh, to 2% or higher in the months ahead, it will be the first time it has reached that level since late July of 2019. But as you might recall, back then the yield curve was inverted and the three-month treasury was actually yielding a slightly higher rate than the 10-year. Mm -hmm. Of course, today the yield curve is back to a steeper upward slope uh, in fact, it's, uh, it's, it's been since the first quarter of 2017 that it's been as high as, as it is today at about 1.5%. A steep yield curve uh, can be interpreted as a bullish forecast of economic growth, and uh, it's also fa a favorable environment for banks and other uh, lending-based in institutions. So I think longer-term rates uh, bear continued watching here, but are still represent representative of an improving economy and have to be evaluated in terms of uh, their comparison to economic and earnings growth. Tom, you've also mentioned correction risks as a concern. 
The risk of the market experiencing a short-term decline of about 10% or so. How, how are you gauging this? Uh, yes, I, I think correction risk, the risk of a short-term pullback of about 10% or so it is pretty high right now. I'm okay. not saying that uh, necessarily based on market fundamentals or valuations, uh, but more on human nature and history. Okay. Uh, it's only human nature for some investors to take profits at some point. And right now, the S&P 500 is up more than 90% on a total return base since, uh, since March 23rd of last year. So there probably aren't a lot of people at this point who would feel real foolish uh, if they were to sell and book some of those gains right now. Uh, and, and since 1950, uh, the S&P 500 has had 36 corrections of more than 10%. So that's uh, just about one every two years. And the average time between the end of corrections and the beginning of new corrections is a year and a half, and the median time is one year, all of which means the probability of a correction is probably on the rise over the next year. Uh, okay. But a couple of things here. Uh, first is if we do see a correction of 10% or greater in this environment, I believe there is a strong very strong probability that will prove to be a buying opportunity given a lot of factors that we've talked about in the past few minutes. Uh, second is that I also believe that corrections and double-digit pullbacks in the market are simply part of long-term investing, and in my opinion, uh, should not be overemphasized. Uh, they're perhaps best viewed as opportunities to realign and rebalance into stocks at more favorable prices. So I think a correction is probably coming in the next several months. Uh, but if you're in for the long term, uh, I think you probably try to use it to your advantage. So, Tom, we've covered what you've defined to be the market's major catalysts and concerns. How should investors attempt to net these out? Uh, yes. And this represents one of the great ironies of investing, in my opinion, which is once a given set of market worries begin to subside, a new set uh, quickly emerges, often driven by the reconciliation uh, of the earlier one. Mm -hmm. So in large part because the economy looks to be on a much faster pace than originally expected, and because Congress has been able to pass larger than expected fiscal stimulus, we've seen a pretty steep rise in longer-term interest rates these past few months and we now have some concerns about rising inflation. And of course, the higher stocks move, the more risk we have to some degree of a correction if for no other reason than simple profit taking. And we also now have some risk of higher federal taxes linked uh, to the pending uh, infra infrastructure and spending bills likely to be heavily debated within Congress later this year. So in this case, I think you have to look at the trade-offs. The economy is looking at dramatically higher growth than was believed to be the case just months ago. Fiscal mm -hmm. stimulus in the several trillions is filtering through the economy and corporate earnings are also breaking through to record levels. And by all measures, it also looks as though the Fed will remain accommodated for some time. The mm -hmm. trade-offs of this better big picture, if you will, involve rising longer-term interest rates uh, that are still quite low by historical standards and a potential rise of inflation that, in my opinion, is still likely to be transient in nature and also 
uh, even within such a transient state, still at or below historical averages. Uh, and of course, correction risks after strong market moves have always been part of the deal for long-term investors. So that leaves us with potentially higher taxes or the risk thereof to some degree, uh, which we'll need to play out later this year. Okay. So Patrick, uh, there's still much more to be reconciled in the months ahead. Uh, and after uh, the big move we've seen this past year, I'd say we could see some short-term uh, market volatility. Uh, but with economic and earnings growth about to take off, and the still and the Fed is still very accommodative. Uh, well, I think in aggregate that all outweighs the risks of higher inflation, long-term interest rates, and potentially higher taxes. Okay. So, in taking a step back, I, I think this is a deal most everyone would have taken a year ago, and, and one that I'll still take today. So, all considered, Patrick, uh, I believe investors uh, still have a lot more working for them in this environment than against them. Thank you, Tom, and we'll look forward to our next discussion. Uh, thank you, Patrick. Investments are subject to market risk, including the loss of principal. Asset classes or investment strategies described may not be suitable for all investors. Past performance does not guarantee future results. The information included in this podcast should not be construed as investment advice or a recommendation for the purchase or sale of any security. This material contains general information only on investment matters. It should not be considered as a comprehensive statement on any matter and should not be relied upon as such. The information does not take into account any investor's investment objectives, particular needs, or financial situation. The value of any investment may fluctuate. This information has been developed by Transamerica Asset Management Incorporated and may incorporate third-party data, text, images, and other content to be deemed reliable. Comments and general market-related projections are based on information available at the time of writing and believed to be accurate, are for informational purposes only, are not intended as individual or specific advice, may not represent the opinions of the entire firm, and may not be relied upon for future investing. Investors are advised to consult with their investment professional about their specific financial needs and goals before making any investment decisions. The COVID-19 pandemic has caused substantial market disruption and dislocation around the world, including the U.S. Economies and financial markets throughout the world are increasingly interconnected. Economic, financial, or political events, trading and tariff arrangements, terrorism, technology and data interruptions, natural disasters, and other circumstances in one or more countries or regions could be highly disruptive to and have profound impacts on global economies or markets. Fixed income investing is subject to credit rate risk, interest rate risk, and inflation risk. Credit risk is the risk that the issuer of a bond won't meet their payments. Inflation risk is the risk that inflation could outpace a bond's interest income. Interest rate risk is the risk that fluctuations in interest rates will affect the price of a bond. Investing in floating rate loans may be subject to greater volatility and increased risks. Equities are subject to market risk, meaning that stock prices in general may decline over short or extended periods of time. Investments in global and or international markets involve risks not associated with U.S. markets, such as currency fluctuations, adverse social and political developments, and the relatively small size and lesser liquidity of some markets. These risks may be greater in emerging markets. Transamerica Asset Management Incorporated is an SEC-registered investment advisor. The funds advised and sponsored by Transamerica Asset Management Incorporated include Transamerica Funds, Transamerica Series Trust, and Delta Shares Exchange Traded Funds. Transamerica Asset Management Incorporated is an indirect, wholly-owned subsidiary of Aegon NV, an international life insurance, pension, and asset management company. 265614.